You can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're doing a little series for Christmas. And uh, the title is God's Final Word in His Son out of Hebrews chapter 1. One thing that we have to uh, remember this time of year, I think, is it's, it's important to understand that uh, the focus of this holiday is very, it, it can be uh, very easily, um, we can be very easily distracted from the true meaning of Christmas if we allow ourselves to be so. And so we want to just kind of refocus our hearts and our minds uh, this morning because it's uh, clear that um, the reason we celebrate Christmas is because of Christ. And as much as the world wants to do to try to uh, discourage that, that's the truth. And uh, that's what we want to be uh, focused on. Just in way of review from last week, um, we've, we've looked at, over the years, the Christmas story as the Gospels tell it. And we thought this year we would take a little different look and look at the book of Hebrews and uh, it's another perspective on the birth of Christ. Uh, you might say the Gospels were that of a human perspective, and Hebrews really truly is the perspective from God himself. And uh, the Gospels basically describe the birth of Christ with just a few words, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's all we basically know. I mean, it gives the details of where and all that, but as far as the actual birth of the Son of God, it's hard to believe that that's all that the Gospels say about it. And so it's good to look through the New Testament and to find that um, even though they don't talk about the wise men in the manger and all the other stuff, the stable and all that, they do talk about the birth of Christ, even though from a different angle. It gives us a different insight into Christ's birth. Uh, because you, you have to remember that back when Christ was born, there was nothing to identify that child from any other child who had been born. There wasn't a halo around his head. You know, he didn't glow or anything like that. He was a normal human baby, even though he was the very God incarnate. And so this really gives us God's perspective, you might say, on the incarnation. Last week, we looked at, first of all, the preparation. And we looked at verse 1, where it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. And we talked about that being the preparation for Christ. There had to be preparation for the Messiah. He couldn't just show up in a manger and just unannounced and, and you know, no one would know anything. So the Lord, through the, the Old Testament... For years and years, thousands of years, prophesied that the Messiah would come and how he would come and, and how he would be born and where he would be born. And all those prophecies came to pass in the incarnate Son of God when he was born. And so we, we understand that it says there in a long, in times past um, or a long time ago. Remember that these, these folks are coming out of a, a dry period in the New Testament for about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there was no prophecy, no prophet, nothing. And so then you had John the Baptist 
and then you had Christ with all his miraculous healings and everything, and it was almost overload for the people. They, they really couldn't believe it. But it says here in verse 1, it tells us how he spoke. It says that he spoke to the fathers, and how he did that, he did it in a various ways. He do it through types or parables or symbols or ceremonies or a stone even on, at times, written on a, t- a stone in the Old Testament. Um, sometimes his voice was heard directly. Sometimes it was a dream. It was a vision. But that's how he spoke. And it says that he spoke through the prophets to the fathers. And so that was the, really the, the preparation for Christ's coming. He just didn't plop in a manger one day. God prepared everything from eternity past for the Son of God to be born. And then we looked at the presentation of Christ in verse 2, because it says there that God spoke in various times over a period of time and in various ways. You look at the Old Testament books, all the different ways that he spoke um, to the fathers by the prophets. Then it says in verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Spoken to us by his son. That's when revelation was complete. There's nothing to be said after the Son of God had become incarnate. What's he mean by that? He means God said all that he has to say. When he sent his Son, there was nothing more that needed to be said. And you you can ask the question, well, doesn't the New Testament end at, or why doesn't the New Testament then end at the Gospels? You can ask that question. If When Jesus was born, if everything was done, well, then why do we have all the epistles that came after the Gospels. Because you have to understand, the Gospels give the story of Jesus Christ. It gives a, us a historical perspective, a human perspective. And when you look at those four Gospels, each writer is coming at it from a different angle. Four different views of Christ. But the story really doesn't, uh, it doesn't end there. Uh, it ends with Jesus going back into heaven. It doesn't end at the manger. It ends up with him going back into heaven at the Gospels and that he'll be promising to return. But the rest of the New Testament then kind of is, is in addition to those Gospels and that revelation. It looks back at Christ and it focuses on interpreting and, and kind of understanding the significance of his incarnation and his resurrection and his death and everything, it kind of explains what actually happened in the life of Christ for us in a theological way, you might say. So it's important to understand that that Christ was, first of all, it was prepared for him, and then it was also, he was presented to us because he's spoken to us by his Son. And that's why today we don't believe in divine revelation as as, as some do. Uh, I think the Bible has pretty much closed the book on that. We have the canon of Scripture. That's what we need. When people start saying, oh, I have a new gospel, or I have a new word from the Lord, or a new vision, well, then really, if it's God's word, if it's literally, thus saith the Lord, why don't we just add it to the back of the book? We can have the book of Stephanus, or you know, the book of Ken, or the book of whatever. Uh, you, know, you wouldn't do that, because God's revelation is complete in his Son. And so you have to be careful. Nowadays, people have a voice, you hear the voice of God all over the place. And you have to be discerning. And so you always have to take whatever that is. God can work in, in different ways. He can influence us through the Spirit. I'm not saying he, he doesn't do that. He does. 
But it always has to drive with what we already have revealed in Scripture. Jesus isn't going to tell you to do something that contradicts his already revealed word. Now, you notice that little phrase there in verse 2. It says, has in these last days. That's a very familiar phrase to um, a Jew, and that's who this book is basically written to, Messianic Jews, and some even those who have yet to be believers in the Messiah. That's who Hebrews was written to. Um, but they would identify that, that phrase as the Messianic age. It's like the latter days. Ever since Jesus came, we've been in the latter days. Do you understand that? Some say, when is the latter days going to start? Well, we were already in the last days. We're in the latter, latter days right now. Ever since the Messiah was born, we've been in the latter days. And so in this, this time, God spoke, and he spoke through his son, who was God incarnate. See, he's not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. He is God. The Bible clearly points that out. And we're going to look a little bit at that this morning. Um, and we have the, all the words of the Old Testament that were kind of, they didn't make a whole lot of sense because it was leading up to something, but we didn't know what the something was. And so now we have the complete revelation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and now all the pictures of the puzzle are put together. Because Jesus said, remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father, right? And I don't know how that exactly works. I don't know how that little baby lying in a manger can be fully man and fully God. I don't know. If you figure it out, let me know. We were talking about that a little bit on Wednesday night at our Bible study. Uh, we don't understand that mystery of godliness that came down and, and became human. And yet he was still fully God. But that's what the Bible says. And so there was a preparation for Christ laid out in the Old Testament. And then he presented Christ as he spoke through the word of God. And I think from there, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the preeminence, what I'm going to call it, of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. Um, It says there in verses 2 and 3, and I'll just read this for us. has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the mystery of the majesty on high. And so we see seven different kind of, uh, attributes, you might say, or, or seven different um, a presentation items here in these couple verses of Christ. And it speaks of his, his, his preeminence, of him being uh, deity, of him being Christ. The first one is his inheritance. His inheritance. It says, In the last days God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed, what? Heir of all things. See, if Jesus Christ is God, then he is heir of all that God possesses. What does God possess? Everything. Everything that exists. And I think that that's an important thing for us to understand. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And it continues there in verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations of thine inheritance. 
and the very ends of the earth is thy possessions. You shall break them as a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them as earthenware. And then even in Psalm 89, 27, it says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn here doesn't mean that Christ didn't exist before he was born. That's not what he's talking about. It's not primarily a chronological term, but it has to do with legal rights. It has to do with those who are going to inherit something, and they have the authority uh, to inherit those things. So God's destined kingdom will be, in the last days, given finally to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He possesses everything. Paul explained that all things not only were created by Christ, but who? But for Christ in Colossians 1.16. Even in Romans 11.36, it says this, From him and through him and to him, what? Are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, everything that exists, exists in Jesus Christ. Everything. What truth proves that better than the truth that he was equal with God? That he was equal with God. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5 once. Revelation chapter 5. It says here in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw... In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The scroll is the title deed to the earth and all that is in it, everything that's possessed within the earth, that's what this is. It's a title deed. It is the deed to the heir, the one who has the right to take the earth. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, Roman law required that a will had to be sealed seven times in order to protect anyone from messing around with it. And so as you roll these scrolls up, you would seal it at every turn for seven turns. And the the seals were not to be broken until the person who was legitimately the heir of that deed, then he um, he could break that after the person died. But John continues there in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals so john is kind of uh, perplexed a little bit here in verse four or verse three he says no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it there was nobody qualified verse four so i wept very much john says Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or even to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, 
each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Now you you look at those verses. And who is it talking about? It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who is worthy to open this scroll. Chapter 6 of Revelation begins the description of the the, the revelation. Or the uh, tribulation. And it's the beginning of Christ. Remember we said Christ will be coming back. And he will take literally back this earth. He will establish his kingdom here on this earth. And you can go through Revelation 6. And read as he unrolls. Each of these these, uh, seals. These scrolls are broken. In chapter 11. Verse 15. Of Revelation. After. The, the, the seals are, are broken here. It says in verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there's, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So that proves the simple point that everything was given to Christ, and he alone is worthy to have it. Even in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, when Peter was preaching his first um, sermon at Pentecost, he said this, Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So this carpenter who was nailed to a tree was in fact the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is coming back to rule the world. That's why Satan attacked him the way he did. Satan knew exactly what was going to happen. But he tried to dissuade Christ from doing that when he tempted him. He tried to have Christ usurp God's rule and bow to Satan. And remember, when Christ came to earth the first time, he, came, he became poor, the Bible says, for our sakes. He gave all that up. Luke 9.58 says that he didn't even have anywhere to lay his head. He was so poor. Even his clothes were taken from him when he died. He was buried in a grave that wasn't his. It belonged to somebody else. See, but when Christ comes back, when Christ comes to earth again, he's going to be completely... and. His, his, his inheritance will be full. He's going to inherit all things. And because we have put our faith, our trust in Him, the Bible says that we will become fellow heirs with Him. It doesn't say we'll become fellow Christ. It, say we'll, it says we will become fellow heirs with Him. When we enter into His eternal kingdom, we're going to possess jointly all that He possesses, if you can imagine that. What an amazing thing. What a blessing. We're not going to be joint Christ or joint lords, but we're going to be joint heirs, the Bible says. And so his marvelous inheritance is going to be ours as well. And even though that happens, it's amazing to me that when you look at prophecy and you look at all that was foretold about Christ and and everything that just lines up right to the T, 
one little thing out of place, then he's not the Messiah. But if you study that out, everything just lines up perfectly. And yet, some amazingly still reject him. Even though he is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. They reject the God as he was revealed in the Old Testament. And they reject the person of the New Testament. And what I mean to do with him. But Christ truly had his inheritance. Well, the second thing that we see here is that he not only had an inheritance, but he had his power. Back to Hebrews chapter 1, it says there, whom, or, uh, through whom also he made the worlds. He made the worlds. When's the last time you made anything? Maybe you put something together out of a box. Maybe you put together a model, or maybe you put together some furniture. Maybe you even took some wood and sawed it and glued it and hammered it and nailed it together and made a nice piece of furniture. I don't know. That's an accomplishment. You can look back, sit back and say, wow, that's pretty neat. But can you imagine someone who made everything, created everything, That's what it says there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It says, not only was he appointed, he had an inheritance, but through whom also he made the worlds. Everything that we see around us, Christ is the agent through whom God made the world. He created it. John 1, 3 says, all things came into being what? By him. And apart from him, nothing came into being. That has come into being. In other words, without Jesus Christ, we don't have anything. Nothing. No earth, no cars, no family, nothing. Not a zip. That's the power that Christ possesses. And one of the greatest proofs of his deity, the proof that that little baby in the manger was God incarnate, was his power to create. See, the ability to create things belongs to God and God alone. You know, as human beings, sometimes we think that somehow we're going to one day create something, and you've got scientists working on that even now. They want to create life. Well, they're not creating life. They're just taking what God had already created and tweaking it a little bit. That's all they're doing. And see, we need to begin to understand that only God has that supernatural power to create Something out of nothing. He created everything material and everything spiritual. And you've got to remember, when Christ first created, he created everything, the Bible says. He looked at it and he said, this is good. It was good. Only since then has it been stained by the sin of mankind. But even that is going to be restored one day, Romans 8 says. It's going to be restored to what it was in the beginning. That word there, world, or all things there, through through whom he also made the worlds, worlds, it says, um, it's not the word that you've heard, cosmos. It's not that word. It's a different word. It's the word for ages. It's the word that means ages. See, Jesus is not just responsible for creating the physical earth, beloved. He's responsible for creating time, 
if you can believe that. Space, energy, matter, all that are from the hands of his creative power. Christ created the whole universe and everything in it. He made it function perfectly. And he did it without even breaking a sweat. Amazing power. John MacArthur, in his, one of his commentaries, he has a quotation from a Nobel laureate, Sir John Eccles, and he's a neurophysicist. And he said this, the odds against the right combination of circumstances occurring to have evolved intelligent life on earth are highly improbable. But he went on to say that he believed that such did occur, (laughs) but could never happen again on planet earth or in any other solar system for that matter. It's just, just unheard of. See, if you don't recognize the creator, then you're going to have a real problem explaining everything about this universe, everything about our human body. Um, And yet people all the time are convinced that somehow we climbed up out of the primordial slime pit and just evolved. Circumstance, just, you know, trial and error. I mean, when you stop and you think of just your body, your body alone, who has a heart that over the normal lifetime it beats 800 million times and pumps enough blood to fill a string of tank cars running from Boston to New York. That same man whose tiny cubit half-inch section of brain contains basically all the memories of a lifetime. I mean, you think your little SD card has a lot of power. Or your little thumb drive. Think of a human brain. Even the things you don't want to remember, you can't forget. That same man whose ear somehow transfers sound waves from air to liquid without even losing any sound. Doesn't make sense. There's another brilliant scientist... A.K. Morrison. And he tells us that conditions for life on earth demand so many billions of minute interrelated circumstances appearing simultaneously in the same infinitesimal moment that such a prospect becomes beyond belief and beyond possibility. He goes on and he talks about the vastness of our universe If you could somehow put 1.2 million Earths inside the sun, if you could do that, you would still have room for another 4.3 million moons. The sun is 865,000 miles in diameter and is 93 million miles from Earth. The next nearest star is Alpha Centauri, and it's five times larger than our son. He created all this. The moon is only 211,463 miles away. You could walk there if you wanted to in 27 years. Ray of light travels at 186,000 miles per second, so a beam of light would reach the moon in about one and a half seconds. 
Don't forget, he created light too. If you could travel at that speed, it would take two minutes and 18 seconds to reach Venus, four and a half minutes to reach Mercury, one hour and 11 seconds to reach Saturn, to reach Pluto, it would take, which is 2.7 billion miles from Earth, it would take nearly four hours. If you got that far, you'd still be well inside our own solar system. The North Star is four trillion miles away but is still nearby in relation even to known space. Betelgeuse, that one star that's way out there, eight, 880 quadrillion miles. That's 880 followed by 15 zeros. It has a diameter of 250 million miles. That's greater than the Earth's orbit. See, when you stop and you look at some of this stuff and you think, well, this just all kind of came out of a little mud pie or something, it's ridiculous. Where did it all come from? Who conceived it? Who made it? I mean, it can't be an accident. Someone made it, and the Bible tells us the maker was Christ, Jesus Christ. He came down, and he was that little baby. He had all the power that he had, even the creation power. The third thing is we see his glory his glory. It says there in verse 2, in these last days he's spoken to us through his son, whom he also appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then in verse 3 it says, who being the brightest of his glory. Some translations read radiance. It represents Jesus as the manifestation of God. He expresses God to us. See, he's not a, I think one translation, I can't remember which said, he's the reflection, and that's not the right word. He's not just reflecting. It's like when you look at the moon at night, what is the moon doing? On a clear night, you see a a bright moon in the sky. The, The light is not coming from the moon, right? It's just reflecting light. The moon is a rather dark, cold place. So when you think of something that is radiance of his glory, it means that 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 glory is coming out of him because he is God. He's not just reflecting God's glory. Jesus Christ is the glorious light of God, the Bible says, that shines into the hearts of men and women. And just as the sun was never without and can't be separated from its brightness. You can't take the brightness of the sun and separate it from the sun. You just can't do it. God was never without and can't be separated from the glory of Christ. Just can't. He is fully and absolutely God. Yet, he's still a distinct person. You know, we would never be able to see or even to enjoy God's light if we didn't have Jesus Christ to look at. If he wouldn't have come down and put on a human body. Remember, he said one day in in John 8, 12, as he was standing before the temple, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of what? Life. 
Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He can transmit that light into our own lives if we choose to follow him. There's that darkness in our world of injustice and failure, separation, disease, death, all sorts of things. But there's nothing like the light of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul explains, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It says it very clearly. God sent his light in the person of Jesus Christ that we might behold, accept, and then even radiate that light. But Satan is out there trying to blind the minds of men and women and children so they won't see the light of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says this, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, Christ is central to all this. And that's what happens when God comes into your life. There was a song that was written, I don't know, it was in the 80s or whatever, You Light Up My Life. Remember that song? I don't know if she was talking about God or her boyfriend, but the words of that song are true. When Christ comes into your life, he definitely lights you up. Next thing there, his nature or his being, we see. His nature or his being. It says, the express image of his person. Jesus Christ is the express image of God. Christ not only was God manifest, he was God in substance. He was an exact representation. And it kind of explains that. It, it's, it means that it was a, something that they would take in the, the times of the Bible, they, when they were to cast something, they would take wax and they would get it soft and they would push the image down into the wax and then they'd pull the image out and they'd have an exact representation of whatever they wanted to, to cast. Colossians 1.16 gives us a similar uh, Verse there, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. That word image is, is icon, E-I-K-O-N, in, in the Greek language, the word where we get icon from. What's it mean? It means a precise copy, exact representation. It's not a cheap imitation of God. It means that he is the exact re- reproduction of God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Somehow we, we bypass that when it comes around Christmas. You know, we look at the manger, we look at the little baby, and we begin to realize, well, okay, you know, it's, we forget that this was God. This was the God who was going to die on the cross for our sins. Somehow we bypass that. We forget that. 
Next thing this, these verses show us in verse 3 is it shows us his authority. It says not only is the express image of his person, that being God's, and it says upholds all things by the word of his power. That speaks of Christ's authority. Christ not only made all things, and not only will he one day inherit all things, but the Bible says that somehow he holds all things together in the meantime. That, that word there, upholds, means to support or to maintain. The tense here is in the present tense. And what that means is it's a continuous thing. And one day I believe that Christ will stop doing this action. He'll stop upholding all things by the word of his power. I mean, just think of it logically. When you stop and you think, you've all been probably in a science class at one point or another, and you you get down to the little atom, and you, you have all these little things flying around in there. One thing I've never heard is, why don't those things just, you know, go out and wherever? doesn't make any sense. Christ is holding them literally together. I really believe that. One day, he's going to let go. And when he lets go, literally all hell is going to break loose here on earth. That's exactly what's going to happen. And that's where we have to really begin to understand that as... Christ's authority is over over all these things. Everything in the universe is held together by his power. I mean, when you stop and you think of just the world, the earth, um, I mean, even when something little lets go, you know, a tsunami hits or an earthquake or, or something like that, a flood... Boy, you know, you look at the devastation that it causes. Can you imagine all those things happening at the same time? It's going to be disastrous. I mean, literally, we would go out of existence if Christ were not sustaining us. I mean, think if God just, Christ just for just a couple of seconds said, you know what, I'm going to make the law of gravity go away. <laughs> He could do it. He's the one that holds it there. I mean, can you imagine what would happen? It'd be crazy. And so you look at that and you look at his authority and, and the power that he has there. Some say that the sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's Scientists say that if our earth were any closer to the sun, it would literally burn up. And yet, if it were any further away, we would freeze. It's placed precisely at the right place. Our globe is tilted on the exact angle of 23 degrees. Gives us the four seasons that we know of. Scientists say that if it weren't tilted in such a way, vapors from the oceans would move north and south, and develop into these monstrous continents of ice. If the moon didn't retain its exact distance of the earth, the ocean tides would just run the land over completely, twice a day. I mean, you stop and you think all these things are very precise. They're very exact. And Christ is the one who holds all these things 
together. He maintains it all. He's not like the, the some people call themselves deists and they think, well, yeah, God created everything, then he just kind of sat back and he just lets it do whatever it wants. Well, that's not true. He's maintaining the world as we know it. He's holding these things together. No scientist or mathematician or astronomer or nuclear physicist could do anything without upholding, without the upholding power of Jesus Christ. Literally, the whole universe hangs on the arm of Jesus. And he does it without any effort. The key to the creation story to understanding the beginning is those two words in Genesis where God said just that, God said. God spoke and it happened. That's the kind of power that we're talking about. It's the kind of authority. That's why in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. See, we should be encouraged as believers that the same God who created everything around us is the same God who began a work in your heart. And he says it's not going to be undone. He's going to hold on to it. He's going to sustain that work, no matter how topsy or turvy your life may get. He's going to see it through. I think of the verses in Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. See, when your life is given to Jesus Christ, he holds it. He sustains it. And one day, he's going to take you into the very presence of God himself. And whether you're talking about a life or whether you're talking about a universe, if it doesn't have that steady hand of Christ involved in it, it's utter chaos. Next thing he goes on here in verse 3 is he talks about his atonement. He says, when he had by himself purged our sins, made atonement for our sins. See, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible clearly says. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died our deserved death. He died it. He did that for us. And he took the penalty of our sins upon himself. That's what we were talking about last week, communion time. See, and if we will accept his death and believe that he died for us, he's basically going to free you from the penalty of sin. And he's going to purify you from the stain of sin. I mean, it's an incredible work that Christ created the world. It's incredible that he sustains the world. But can you imagine even a greater work than that? Upholding the world and... And then purging men from their sin? Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Here's what we're told about Christ. Hebrews 7, verse 27.
He's speaking of, I'll start in verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Speaking of Christ, here's what he says in verse 27. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's sins. For this he died once for all when he offered up himself. When Christ offered up himself and he sacrificed and it was accepted by God, that's done. That's why we don't have an altar here. We don't come out and and have, you know, when we have communion, I don't take the host and I reach up to heaven and pull Jesus down upon the altar and then do some miracle power and make this bread into the flesh and the juice into the blood of Christ. That's what they believe. That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. They believe that somehow you have to continue this sacrificial system. That's why they have priests. We have pastors. I mean, people sometimes ask me, well, you know, don't you think that you could be... be uh, a Christian go to the Catholic Church? Sure, it's possible. But I don't see why you would want to go to a church that drags Jesus out of heaven every Sunday, every Mass, and re-sacrifices him on an altar by a priest when God's Word clearly says, you know what, it was done once. He offered once for all when he offered himself. This does not continue. Why would you want to be part of a system like that? See, he was not only the high priest, the ultimate high priest, but he was the ultimate sacrifice. And because his sacrifice was pure, he can purify our sins. Something that the Old Testament sacrifice could never do. They were only looking forward to the anticipation of that perfect sacrifice. In Hebrews 9... Verses 12 to 14, it just tells us a little more about the power of his atonement, of his sacrifice. It says there, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Then he says down in verse 26, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We don't need to go there anymore. There's nothing you need to do to try to clean yourself up to come to Christ. Christ has already done it. That should be good news. You just have to be willing to accept the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. He's already paid the penalty of your sin. 
Christ went to the cross and he bore the penalty for our sin for all who would accept his sacrifice. Believe in him and receive him and follow him. Their sins were purged. Their sins were wiped out, the Bible says. I mean, you can't get any more straightforward than Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. He says, you know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, we are all sinners, beloved. The the Bible clearly points out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And either we pay the penalty for our own sin, which is eternal death, separation from God for eternity, or we accept Jesus Christ's payment when he sacrificed himself. And when we do that, we receive eternal life. If the desire of our heart is to receive him as Savior to believe in him and to accept his sacrifice, our sins, the Bible says, are washed away at that point. The Bible also says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin in Hebrews 9.22. 1 John 1.7, it says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, Jesus came as a baby, but he also came as a perfect sacrifice. Blood of Jesus Christ will never be applied to you unless by faith you receive him into your life. And yet there's still people that will reject that that gift, that that message. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews actually addresses those who would reject this message. And here's what it says. In Hebrews chapter 10, if you're rejecting the message of Christ, the free gift of eternal life through the sacrifice of Christ, here's what he says. In Hebrews 10, verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if we reject Jesus Christ, as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the one who paid our penalty, there's nothing else in the whole universe, in the world that he created, that can take away that sin. And you will end up dying in your sin, as the Bible describes. Romans 8, 21, Jesus said, you shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you can't come, ever. Because you're not willing to come to God through me. That's his atonement. Last thing this morning, his exaltation. His exaltation. It says after the atonement, and I think it's very fitting that they put this right next in the verse. It says he purged for our sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his exaltation. Remember, we said that Christ was came as a baby. Just God coming as, as a human being was, was humiliating enough. I mean, can you imagine having all the creative power of Jesus Christ and having to put up with some of the stuff that he had to put up with? With some of the scribes and the Pharisees are always trying to trick him. They're always trying to do this. They're always, he, had all the, he could have just went, zap, you're all toast. But he knew that wasn't in the Father's plan. 
And so he yielded himself and his divine powers to the, the Father's plan. Still had them. They were all intact. He wasn't any less God when he was a human being. Some people say, well, when Jesus was in a body, was he omniscient? Did he know everything? Of course he did. Over and over again, he said, oh, he knew in their heart. He knew in their heart. Was he omnipotent? Could he, could he do it? Yeah. Look at, he created bread out of nothing, fish out of nothing, fed thousands of people, healed people. He had incredible power. Was he able to be everywhere at the same time? If he chose to be, he could. If not in his physical body, at least in his spirit. Remember, he said he, he saw certain individuals at certain places in their life. He wasn't there with them physically, but he knew. He laid all that aside and he, 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 he packed himself into this little bundle of joy we call a baby. And because of his obedience and because of his willingness to be humbled in the form of a servant for us, it says, this verse speaks of his exaltation. When it's all over, this is when he sits down. And that's, that's the wonderful statement here. This perfect high priest, it says he sat down. See, in the Old Testament, the priest could never sit down. They had no place to sit. And then God knew in the Old Testament it wouldn't be appropriate. There's too many sins to atone. There are all these sacrifices and blood. Everywhere. You couldn't even sit down. I mean, you'd be sitting in a pool of blood probably from all the sacrifices that were going on. There were no seats in the tabernacle. Or the temple. His responsibility in the Old Testament was to sacrifice, sacrifice over and over and over and over and over again as a picture of this final sacrifice. See, but Jesus offered himself once and it says that when, when he finished, it, that's exactly what he says, it is finished. And when that happened, it says that he went and he sat down with the Father. It's done. It's accomplished. What the Old Testament could not accomplish, Christ did with the sacrifice of himself. When he sits down, it signifies quickly four things. First of all, it's a sign of honor. Sign of honor. Philippians 2.11 says, Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, to be seated at the right hand of God is, is a sign of honor. It's also a sign of authority. 1 Peter 3.22, he's at the right hand of God. Right hand is a sign of authority, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers, and he has been subject to them. He's sat down as a ruler. Thirdly, showed us that he sat down to rest, or he, his work was done, it was over. The last thing, he sat down to intercede for us. You know, the Jesus Christ is he who died, Romans 8 34 says, yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? It's the Bible says in Romans 8, 34, that he is interceding for us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all of us who belong to him. 
I mean, if that doesn't help you sleep at night, nothing will. The fact that Jesus is concerned with you on an ongoing basis, even while he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that just blows my mind. We've seen him as priest. We've seen him as king. And now, here, he's seated at the right hand of God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the message of Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. This isn't, you know, it's not about elves and Santa Claus and reindeer and, and candy canes. And I mean, all those things are fun and fine. But you know what? Don't miss the message that, you know what? God, out of his love for us, sent his son to speak to our hearts finally. To sacrifice himself in a final sacrifice. That when we put our faith, our trust, our hope in Him, and we live for Him on a daily basis, desiring to serve Him and to to live lives that are honoring and glorifying Him, lives of obedience, that's, that's what Christmas is all about. That we have that opportunity to do just that. I pray this morning that you would As we leave this place, remember that in your hearts as we go out into this world that is so distracted from the true meaning of Christmas. That maybe somehow, some way you could interject a little bit of hope, a little bit of love into their lives through the message of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would minister your grace to our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we even ponder these things in our heart just now, Lord, I I pray that you would speak to that heart who's yet to commit to you. Father, you know the reason why or why not, and Lord, we just pray that you would minister your grace to them, that you would draw them in a way that they couldn't resist. And Father, I pray that you would make plain to us the message of Christmas. Lord, help us not to be distracted by all the things around us, but Lord, help us to keep our priorities right. And we're having a good time with family and friends that we would remember that that little baby born that Christmas morning, Lord, was very God. And one day he would be given as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. Father, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.